0: Uh, For now, let's uh, turn to the wonderful book of Isaiah once again, but I'll set it up with a few words here. About 25 years ago, a non-Christian friend of mine complained about preachers to me, preachers on television. His complaint wasn't about money or showiness, Instead, it was a criticism I don't think I've ever heard again. It was this, how these TV preachers said the word God. He said they said it in a way that was too casual, too confident, too familiar. They used it like God was in their back pocket, he said, and they could just take him out whenever they needed him. The word God served them. In their sermons, it was merely a word at their disposal. I think what he was saying, in part, was that they really didn't understand the hugeness of God. The awe-inspiring nature of God. the, The terrifying God. The incomprehensible God who always has existed. The sovereign God. The Godness of God. I want to show you a couple pictures here. This first picture is the Carina Nebula, located in our very own Milky Way galaxy, only 8,500 light years away. It is beautiful. Now, I'm showing you two pictures of this nebula one from the older Hubble Space Telescope and the one from the newer Webb Telescope. This newer telescope allows us to see more, to see more deeply into space. And what it reveals in the pictures I've seen again and again is how gloriously stunning the universe is, even more so. Now, I don't know if you can see it clearly here, But the Sharper Webb Space Telescope shows the stars to look like dazzling gems. They really do look like diamonds. And not just diamonds, white. I've been amazed to see the stars look like colored gems as well. The stars are unfathomably brilliant. Like a jeweler... Laid out his finest collection upon a black velvet background. Let's show you a second picture. This one will change gears. Literally. We'll talk about gears here. This is a, a frog hopper. An animal just a few millimeters long. And yet it can jump over a hundred times its body length. That's like me jumping over a tenth of a mile. Now, just ten years ago, something amazing was discovered about the frog hopper. Its legs contain working gears. As you can see here on the right, the gears synchronize the powerful legs, so they jump at the exact same time. If there were a slight timing difference between the legs, because the legs are so powerful, then the body would start to spin in midair. The gears synchronized the movement of the hind legs to within 30 microseconds of each other, much faster than the nervous system could achieve. Here's the takeaway point from that one. Up till the year 2013, when this was discovered... We had thought humans invented gears. One final picture, this one near and dear to my heart, is a book. A book entitled Design Patterns, Elements of Reusable Object-Oriented Software. Now, I was an electrical engineer in the 90s, but this insightful book helped me change into a programmer and a software engineer. I want to tell you a story about this book. As told by science expert, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Now, Meyer's a science expert, not a programmer. He was surprised one day to have a software engineer toss this book on his desk. Meyer didn't know the book. This engineer who tossed the book was writing a computer simulation. A simulation of what? A simulation of the human cell. Specifically of gene expression, genetics. Gene expression in a cell biology. Now, to do this simulation, to write this code, the engineer had been studying how a biological cell processes information during gene expression. Now, Meyer says this about that conversation with the software engineer. He says, he showed me a book called Design Patterns a Standard Text for Software Engineers. The text, this book, is full of different design strategies. Strategies for processing, storing, copying, organizing, accessing, and correctly digitally encoding strings of information. My colleague told me that he recognized many of these specific design patterns and strategies at work in the cell. He expressed his awe at the sophistication of the cell's design logic and its resemblance to that used in the software industry. He said that the cell often employs a functional logic that mirrors our own, but exceeds it, it's like version 8.0 or 9.0 of design strategies that we have just begun to implement ourselves. He said, when I see how the cell processes information, it gives me an eerie feeling that someone else has figured this out before we got here. So well, let me tell you our goal today, it's to, just, it's to understand, at least a little bit, the godness of God. And let's turn to Isaiah 45, one of the most helpful chapters in all the Bible, on the godness of God. What does it mean when we say God is God? Page 605, if you're using our black Bibles here. I'm going to read all of this chapter to you. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you. And level the exalted places, I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you Cyrus, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. That people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, ask me of the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded, and makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity." For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord. And there is no other. I did not speak in secret. In a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob. Seek me in vain. I the Lord speak the truth. I declare. What is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case, let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none. Besides me, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. For by myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To every knee, to me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me. Our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. I want to highlight three things that this long chapter teaches that there is, first of all, one God, one creator God. Secondly, and one creator God who is still sovereign. Third, let's start with one God. God's message here, did you hear it? It is redundant, wonderfully redundant. Here are some of the verses you just heard about one God. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. Verse 5, I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 6, I am the Lord, and there is no other, verse 18, and there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior, there is none beside me, verse 21, for I am God, there is no other, verse 22, all from just one chapter. One God, we call this monotheism, mono, one theism, God, one God-ism. But if you're new to the Bible, what I'm going to say now might shock you. Sometimes scripture speaks of multiple gods. Now Isaiah didn't say that. Isaiah said the opposite. So how can this be? Which is it? Is there one God or is there many gods? And it depends what your definition of God is. And the Bible uses different definitions. Now, there's only one true God, capital G God in English, one deserving of that capital G. For instance, only one God is Creator God. We're going to get to that here in a moment. Only one God created this world. But, but what if we define God, lowercase g, is this way? A God is a God if someone worships it. It could be a statue or a block of wood or it might be ourselves, or maybe a demon. If it's worshipped, it's a god, small g. And so with this definition, sometimes the Bible speaks of the gods of the nations, not because they're real gods like the one true god that Isaiah 45 speaks of, but because they're worshipped. Now, I want you to know how practical this is. To know that there's one true God. Let's take one example. Perhaps you are a busy, productive person. But you're a little stressed out too. You have all these people in your life. Family, co-workers, neighbors, extended family, and more. And apart from these people, you have all your own duties and goals as well. You're pulled in a thousand directions, and in time you become frazzled, exhausted, confused. You feel you're losing something, but you don't know what it is, something about yourself, but you don't have the words for it. And here's what's going on. You're acting like a polytheist, like there's many gods. You have many gods. This might not sound right, but let's think about it. Each person, including yourself, has become a god that you serve. You are a people pleaser. And people pleasers are polytheists, functionally speaking. And serving many gods is tiring and confusing. I say confusing in part because these gods, the people you please are so different from one another. Now, have you ever heard it said that you are what you eat? Good diet helps your body. You become what you eat. It's even more true that we become what we worship. That we start to image the God or gods that we worship. And if we worship or serve multiple contradictory gods in our people-pleasing... We will start to become and to image that confusion. Who am I anyway? I'm losing something. People pleasing polytheism leads to confusion about who you are. Because you are imaging multiple contradictory gods at the same time. Now I read an example of this recently. I read a first person story. Of a woman who worked at a corporate fashion job, but one day locked herself in a bathroom stall, experiencing a panic attack. She said her palms were so sweaty, she couldn't even stand to touch them. And her ears felt like someone had stuffed cotton balls in them. Everything went black and white. And she felt like she completely lost control. She said that over the previous 10 years, I had lost touch with who I was and what I wanted. Now, she realized she was a people pleaser, and it wasn't working. And so she correctly realized that she would need to concentrate, or shall we say worship, serve only one thing. Not a bunch of things, which was pulling her apart. I wish I could say that she realized that the one true God was that one thing, that one person to center her life upon. But unfortunately, that one thing was herself. In her blog post, she started to proclaim the cure, which she described with the words, self-care, self-esteem, self-worth, needing to pursue her own joy, I don't think she realized it, but she was choosing the worship of self, at least it looked that way, not the one true God. I think she was exchanging one set of problems for another. We make bad gods. We are pathetic, (laughs) unstable, unreliable gods, not only for each other but for ourselves. And you want to know what a real God is like, a God worthy of serving, a God helpful, a God who won't let you down, a God who will make you better and more beautiful as you image Him. That's a God who is good, a God who is strong, a God who doesn't just have life, but is life. A God who is beautiful. And it's the one God who actually created you. And everything else. And that's the next thing to learn from Isaiah. The one true God is also the creator God. So That's the second thing. One true God. Who is the creator God? Number two. Now, one thing the Israelites frequently emphasized that their God, the Lord, wasn't merely their own tribal deity, like all the nations and their gods. Instead, their God, the Lord, was the creator of everyone, of the earth, of the heavens. Listen to this from what we just read, verse 12. I made the earth and created man on it, it was my hands that stretched out the heavens. And I commanded all their host. Verse 8 we heard. I the Lord have created it. Speaking of the earth. Verse 18 we heard. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God. And formed the earth and made it. Now I have visited a few temples. Of gods during my lifetime. I can think of one in Philly. I visited. I can think of. In Athens, Greece, seeing on the Acropolis, the temple to the god Athena Nike. And uh, with Mike speaking today, I remember being in India and going to Varanasi and visiting the temple devoted to Hanuman, the monkey god. Now, these, none of these gods that I just mentioned have a claim of creating The world. Now did you know that? Very, very few gods make this claim to have created the world and everything in it. But this is one of the major parts of God being God. Capital G. The creator. It's key to his resume. And by the way, this is why you and I can trust Him with our entire being. He created us. He created everything. He knows what He's doing. He even created dazzling stars that look like gems. He even created gears. And you know, He didn't have to work with pre-existing matter, like clay. He didn't have to do that. He created matter. He created time. In space. You know, there's an old joke you might know a joke about human arrogance. One day, a group of scientists got together and decided that humanity had come a long way and no longer needed God. So they picked one scientist to go and tell him that they were done with him. The scientist walked up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We're to the point where we can clone people, manipulate atoms, build molecules, fly through space, and do many other miraculous things. So why don't you just go away and mind your own business from now on? God listened very patiently and kindly to the man. After the, science was done, after the scientist was done talking, God said, very well, how about this? Before I go, let's say we have a human-making contest, to which the scientist replied, okay, we can handle that. But God answered, God added, we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. The scientist nodded, sure, no problem, and he bent down and picked up a handful of dirt. And God wagged a finger at him and said, Uh-uh-uh, get your own dirt. The Creator God. Let's move on to the third and last. The Sovereign God. And that was reflected in one word in the first verse. Cyrus. That one word, Cyrus demonstrates God's claim to be sovereign over human history. Here's that verse again. Thus the Lord said to his anointed, to Cyrus, to subdue nations before him. And that is what Cyrus did. Cyrus was the Persian ruler in the 6th century B.C., The one who Isaiah's prophecy predicted would rise to power and eventually end the Babylonian empire and Israelite captivity in Babylon. When we say God is sovereign over human history, we mean that he has a right, the sovereign right, and the ability to control things, to control everything. When we say God control, excuse me, even to channel history towards his purposes, he even uses and directs evil. Now, he's not the author of evil, but he is sovereign over it, even over Cyrus, who wasn't a great guy. But the unsurpassable example of this sovereignty is the crucifixion of Jesus which was carried out freely by evil men, but only served God's sovereign purpose to provide an atonement for our sins. And we must admit something. The cross was utterly perplexing. At first, it looked like a giant failure to the disciples. And likewise, many things in history and in our own lives are mysterious and even indecipherable. We can't figure them out. Read Job on that point. Read Ecclesiastes. And in our passage, Isaiah is told that Cyrus and the Persians are key to God's sovereign plan. But please note that probably only brought up more questions for Isaiah than answers. Why was God doing it this way? And did you hear what was said of God in verse 15 of our passage? Truly you are a God who hides himself. Hides himself. We don't always have access to God. To ask him detailed questions about his plan for human history and for our own lives. And then there's verse 7. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God creates calamity. There are wars, yes, but there are also diseases. Hurricanes, tsunamis, acts of God, the insurance industry calls it. And we might say, why, Lord? And we are told from the beginning of the Bible, the first humans were not completely happy with God's authority. God's godness has always been controversial to us and to our hearts. In response, God banishes the first human pair, as you know, to live east of Eden without full access to a conversational God. Instead, it will appear for long periods of time that God is hidden. And we are told that the world will now be a world cursed by death. And that includes calamity. It's as if God is saying, since you don't like my rule, my godness, And you will not experience a world that is completely comfortable, nor one in which you can easily decipher what I'm up to. But make no mistake, he is in control. As we heard in verse 11, thus says the the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask of me the things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? Now you hear those phrases there, the things to come, the work of my hands. In other words, God's saying, I'm in control. I am sovereign. And so now we end with two options for each of us. What will be our response to God? What will be your response to God, to, to a God who truly is God, capital G, with full Godness. Isaiah actually lays out in this chapter two options for us. The first option was in verse 9. Striving against God. We might choose to strive against God. Verse 9 illustrates that. Woe to him who strives with the God who formed him. Does the clay say to him who forms it? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Now this is a silly little image. Can you imagine? Clay. Talking to the potter. Why would you make this without handles? Can you imagine the clay suddenly saying. Why would you do it like this? Then we might all say. To God. Individually. Why didn't you make me different? Stronger. Smarter. Prettier. Or actually it might be the opposite. Why did you have to make me this pretty? It's only brought me trouble. And why did you make the world. This way. It would have been much better if you did it differently. This kind of reaction is almost natural for us. It's easy to imagine a world improved with handles or not. Even though we don't know but the smallest fraction about this world and what God is up to. You see, the godness of God means we are out of our league. Like clay before the potter, we just are out of our league. We simply are to correct him, to contend with him, is foolishness. And you say this to my foolish heart. It's worse than foolishness. But there's a second option. Isaiah said, "Here's the second option," and it's implied in verse 22. Where God speaks and says to us, turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. It's an invitation. Turn to me and be saved. Isn't that last part great? Be saved. Saved from a bunch of things. Including... Any calamity in your life being the final word in your life. Even if it leads to death. We're talking about being saved from the grave. We're talking about resurrection. Eternal life. And it does go back to that amazing moment on the cross. No one understood what was going on at that moment on the cross. Even though God predicted it through Isaiah. In amazing passages that we'll see over the next six or seven weeks. That moment looks so indecipherable. Or it kind of looked decipherable. Like we've seen this kind of thing before. This tragic end. Government. Pagan government. Caesar cruelly crucifying. Someone who looked so promising. That did look decipherable. and We were wrong. We are out of our league. It was instead a death that was our death. A penalty for our sin. Forgiveness and eternal life. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. Don't miss this invitation. One final thought here. One more thing about the dazzling stars of the universe. They look like diamonds. They look like gems. I encourage you to look at the pictures from the web space telescope the sovereign god is controlling history and it's going towards the destination of an improved heavens and earth and when this is described in the book of revelation it takes gems to describe how beautiful it all is how all beautiful it all will be Twelve different gems are mentioned, as well as gold and pearls. If you think you could improve upon this world, in one sense, you're sort of right. This world is not God's magnum opus. The next world is. It's so amazing that our most amazing gems And precious metals are the best way the prophet can describe what is yet to come. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Don't miss this invitation. As I move to prayer, that is is the final word here. The godness of God. Not being declared in Isaiah to squash you like a bug. Yeah, your knees should buckle a little bit in fear when you realize who this God is. But the end goal is not for us to be squashed, for us to live in abject terror. terror. God's appeal in this very same chapter is turn to me and be saved. Turn to me. Let's go to prayer.